and um, we can dig into this. Father, thank you for your grace to us. Thank you for the sun shining today. Thank you for the gift of your son, Jesus, who has loved us and gave himself up for us and put us together in churches everywhere, all part of your body. And we just thank you for the privilege it is to look at your word. I pray that you give us insight today and honor and respect for your word. Help us to understand a little bit more of who you are through the teaching and preaching of the word and that you would help us to encourage each other today too. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, I don't have an overhead, so you're going to have to look at your handouts. <laughs> Last two weeks, we uh, have talked about prayer. Actually, I think a couple of, maybe three weeks. And last week, Pastor Matt talked through the Lord's Prayer a little bit more. This week's question is, question number 42, how is the Word of God to be read and heard? Look at that answer there. How is the Bible to be read and heard? That's the heart of the question. With diligence, preparation, and prayer, so that we may accept it with faith, store it in our hearts, and practice it in our lives. And I always then dig into the question, well, what does this mean? I think I'm going to let you guys tell me what this means. <laughs> so let's break this down. What does it mean to come to the Word of God with diligence to the Bible? Perseverance. What's that? Perseverance. With perseverance. Okay, so kind of working at it, not quitting. Consistency, okay. Yeah, so tell me more. Right? Yeah. If we, we tell somebody to work with diligence, what do we mean? Endurance. Endurance, that's kind of like the perseverance, yep. Teresa? Uh, I was just thinking, meditating on it, thinking it through. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And there's got to be some something to get you past. Mm-hmm. Okay. So we've, we've got to come at it with this character, this heart of, I'm going to keep, this is going to be hard, but I'm going to keep at it. And I'm going to be come at it consistently and, and, and perseverance, persevering. Okay. We come to the word of God with that attitude that also says with preparation. What does that mean? And why would it say it? Josh? Coming at it with the right heart and mind. Okay. What do we mean by that? Why would we need a right heart, right mind to come to the Bible? Josh? One of the residents where I work reads the Bible a lot, but he doesn't come at it with the right mind. And mm. he uh, takes information out of context and forms it on being based on his own thoughts rather than Got it. Okay. Somebody else, why? Norma. I would think, too, in my case, it would be make sure that you don't have no interruption. I mean, your phone's off. Okay. 
like a literal preparing myself to do this so that there aren't distractions. I like that. Yes, exactly. Recognizing the authority. Okay, recognizing the authority. Hang on to those two thoughts because we're going to get to that, what you both are saying. Why else would we need to prepare our hearts? Like, is there something wrong with us that would make it? What's that? A readiness for his word. To To hear? Yeah. Like, what's our automatic default position when it comes to hearing from the things of hearing from God, hearing preaching or teaching? Where is our hearts typically? Like, if, if you don't do anything, if you, <laughs> what would your natural state be? Focused on them. Thank you, Jeff. Focused on me, right? I have a... It's about me. It's that old 90s worship song. Isn't that how it went? It's all about me. Oh, wait, no, that's not how it went. (laughs) Right? Our hearts are, I mean, there's this tract I like um, that explains the gospel. and And the way it does it, it talks about who will be, it's called Who Will Be King. And it talks about how, God as king created man, man rebelled, and it, like, it has these little stick figure diagrams, and he takes the, throne, the crown and tries to wear it. That's what we do. We try to be king. We need to be about me. Whereas when we need to prepare our hearts, we need to say, God, I, I need you, and I need to recognize that you are king, and you have something to say. That's like the authority piece, I think, that someone was saying. Okay, next part it says, we have to come to the word of God with prayer. I kind of just alluded to that. Why do we need to pray? Maybe we should look at the word for this one, ironically. Go to 1 Corinthians. Now I'm going to have to hunt for this one because I don't know the exact reference and I always confuse whether it's first or second. Uh, it's first, I think it's chapter 2. Yes, chapter 2, 1 Corinthians 2, verse 14. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So, given that, Again, talking about our natural state, which is our natural state fully gone once you become a Christian? If, if it has been removed for all of someone in here, let me know. I'd like to figure out how that happened. <laughs> so why do we need to pray based off this? Why would your friend, Josh, need to pray before reading? Given what you've already seen. Because his first instinct is to compare what the word says based on his own experience. Right, he's using his natural 
thinking, just me as a man in Adam, understanding the Word of God. And I need, that means going to the Word is a spiritual exercise. So I need to ask the Spirit to help me. The theologians have a fancy term for this. I think I brought it up a few weeks ago. It's called illumination. To shine light on. You need the Spirit to help you understand it. Good. Okay. So, the question is, how is the Word of God to be read and heard with diligence, preparation, and prayer? And then it says, so that. So why do I need to come at it with diligence, preparation, and prayer? So that we may accept it by faith. Tell me about that. Why do you think it says that, to accept it by faith? Teresa, I feel like you're wanting to say something. Go for it. I was just thinking, if we don't accept it by faith, then we want to defend our side. Yeah. Justify ourselves instead of accepting and God. Yeah, yeah. Okay, why else? Would we need to accept it by faith? What did Thomas Jefferson do when he read about Jesus walking on the water? What's that? Yeah, he literally cut it out. He didn't accept it by faith. Because naturally, we're going to go, that don't make any sense. Right? Anything supernatural. I have to believe that it's true by faith. This is God who can do anything, right? Okay. So that we may store it in our hearts. Psalm 119.11. How many have memorized that a long time ago? Probably King James. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Or God, thee. <laughs> so why would we store it in our hearts? What does that verse say? To keep us from sin. I wonder why I'm struggling with whatever sin that keeps being persistent, whether it's thoughts or actions, you know, things I say. If you're struggling with that, well, measure and think, okay, how much am I going to the Word of God to help me and putting that in my heart? Okay, and then that final part is so that we may practice it in our lives. What is James 125? Anybody know what that verse is? You don't have to quote it if you don't have it memorized, but you might know what I'm which reference that is. Yeah, yeah. She's Teresa's got it. I'll just read it here. James 125. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, good word earlier. Being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. And that's the paragraph that right a few verses up, it says, But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone's a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer, who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. And uh, John 14, 15 is where Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep my commands. So the word of God, we come to it with hearts, with, with an attitude that this is going to be hard. 
Because it's going to say things I don't necessarily want to hear. It's also going to say things I want to hear, right? <laughs> I know I need to hear. I need to ask the Lord to help me to prepare myself physically. I think emotion, like distractions eliminated, but then also spiritual preparation, praying, asking, so that when I read it, I believe, I accept it by faith that what he's saying is true. I work on storing it in my heart. And I think that literally can be memorizing, but just meditating on it. It's going to be storing it in your heart. So that I can do what it says, right? Okay, that's easy. I mean, not easy, <laughs> is it? It's not easy. But <clears throat> explaining that, that question, that answer, I think was not a whole lot for me to expound on. I knew that you guys would be able to do a great job at it. I want to ask a different question, though, today that I would, haven't normally done in my catechism teaching here. Why? Why is all that true? Why should we come to the Bible like that? It's not in the answer there. Why do I not come to... What's a great book? Like a classic book. The Iliad and the Odyssey. Why do I not come to Homer's Iliad and Odyssey that way? Teresa. Okay. Okay. Teresa, you have an assumption built in what you're saying. I agree it's fully true, but there's something you're assuming about that you haven't stated about the Bible. Did somebody say something over here, Josh? It's supernatural. What do you mean? It means it's inspired by the word God and Ah. Right. What do you mean by inspired? When I look over here on Sunday mornings or in Sunday school, it's really frustrating because you guys look like angels or something because there's like this glow <laughs> coming above you, which is really weird for Josh to be called an angel. But Ashley, I get that. <laughs> it's really, literally, it's like... Okay, what do we mean by inspired? Because see, you see what I mean, Teresa? You had that assumption built in what he just said, though. What do we mean by that? Well, um, real truth, or as far as I can tell, is both can only come from God. And are you saying that there's no truth? There aren't truths outside of the Bible. It's a trick question. Uh, yes and no. <laughs> okay. Yeah. But ultimately it does come from God. Okay. So someone what do we mean by inspired? Like it's not even in modern translations. That was a King James translation from Second Timothy three sixteen, which we'll look at in a minute. God breathed his very word. So the reason why we come to this, to the Bible, with this kind of attitude, with these kind of purposes, is because we believe that this is God's literal word. Divinely inspired. That it is divinely inspired. Not like 
American Idol inspiring, which is often not, <laughs> um, but it's from God, right? Let me just, on your handout, I want to give you a few quotes from church history. So the last, the oldest part of the Bible written was from the book of Revelation. We think that it was written around 90 AD by the, gospel, by the Apostle John. We know it's by him, just time-wise, we're not sure, but we assume it's around 90 AD. One of John's disciples we have the writings of that are not included in the Bible, so they're not scripture, but his name was Polycarp, and you see that here. Um, Polycarp, who was his, one of John's pupils, um, considered the scriptures the very voice of the Most High and pronounced the firstborn of Satan as whoever, whosoever perverts these oracles of the Lord. <laughs> so can you see, like, the, one of the Apostle John's pupils. So this is like one person removed from people who wrote the Bible said about the writings in the Bible, which hadn't been fully collected into a single unit, that you're the son of Satan if you pervert those things, twist them. How, what do you think about his attitude towards the Bible? Right? He raises it up that there you don't mess with it because it's God's very words. Look what Irenaeus, so Irenaeus, Irenaeus was Polycarp's pupil. He claimed the scriptures are perfect, seeing that they are spoken by God's word and his spirit. Origin, which would be late 2nd century, so like 190-ish, asserts that the Holy Spirit was a co-worker with the evangelists, that's the gospels, the disciples who wrote the, the gospels, in the composition of the gospel, and that therefore... Lapse of memory, error, or falsehood was impossible to them. <clears throat> Martin Luther, so you jump forward like uh, 1,400 years, 1,300 years to the 1,500s. Martin Luther, quoting Augustine from 4th century, takes Augustine's words and says that the whole of the scriptures are to be ascribed to the Holy Ghost and therefore cannot err. Now, they're saying two things there, that these words are God's words. But what's the second part? Both those guys mentioned. Did you catch that? That they can't err. They're infallible. You, there's no error in Scripture. And then Calvin, a contemporary of Martin Luther, demanded that whatever's propounded or stated in Scripture, without exception, he says, shall be humbly received by us, that the scriptures as a whole shall be received by us with the same reverence which we give to God. Why? Quote, because they have emanated from him alone and are mixed with nothing human. All right? That's the assumption, I think, Teresa, you had built in, and Josh, you stated, that the Bible is from God himself. Well, these guys have said that, but these guys are guys. They're not, they're not God, Right? And they're not even authors of Scripture. So let's look and see what Scripture itself says about itself. So go over to 2 Timothy. Did I, I might have written it out there in your handout. 2 Timothy 
2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now that word, God breathed, is a unique word in the Greek. It's theonoustos. It doesn't exist anywhere else. Like if you look at Greek literature from the same time and older, scholars cannot find that word used anywhere. It's also not used anywhere else in the New Testament. It really sounds like Paul made the word up. He took God, theos, and noustos, breath, pneuma, and put it together and called it theonoustos. Scriptures are out of God's mouth. He spoke. He spoke and things were created. Scripture was created. I don't know if you've ever caught this before. Where else do we hear that kind of language? God spoke and this came to be. Creation, Genesis. I think, I think the Apostle Paul is giving us an allusion to Genesis 1 when he says that all Scripture is breathed out by God. Which means somehow he used people, which we're going to see in the next passage, to do this. Because it didn't just like appear. There are some cults that <laughs> believe that with their book, that it just appeared. We don't believe that. In fact, we're going to see that next passage. But this word, all of it, is breathed out by God. And it has a purpose that we'll get to in the end here. <clears throat> Flip over to 2 Peter 1 if, if you want to see that there on your, in front of you. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 19 through 21. I know Pastor Matt's pointed this passage out before multiple times and explained it recently. Verse 19 through 21, it says, And we, the Apostle Peter is saying this, have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. And, and that's really astounding because the verse is right before that. Peter's talking about being on the mountain with James and John and seeing Jesus transfigured. Nobody else got to see that. Astounding. You got to see Moses and Elijah there with him. What? Huge. And he's saying right there in that first phrase of this verse, 19, something more fully confirmed. Something more important even than that. To which you will do well to pay attention, it says, as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, the no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So men are speaking, and the Holy Spirit's working. He's not like taking over their tongue like a robot. I think I thought that as a kid, that the way... The Bible was written was that somehow the Holy Spirit, like they possessed him and they would speak and la, la, la. And that's, a, that's not what it's saying. It's carried along. And these, these men who wrote all these different parts of the Bible use their own skills, their own words. Yet at the same time, God was 
intervening and carrying them along so that the only thing that was retained was exactly what he wanted them to write. Um, I put there in your notes, it means that the writing of Scripture wasn't them, Peter, John, Paul, etc., deciding to get up and write a book under their initiative. It wasn't that either. This passage right here is emphasizing the divine side of the interaction and not the human side. Okay, just one more passage I want to look at real quick this morning. Look at Mark 7. I know I didn't put all of this text in here, so you want to look there. Mark chapter 7. Jesus is talking here. And I think you're going to see that Jesus argues that all Scripture is from God. And that's not the point of this section that we're looking at, but it's an indirect point of what he's saying here. So, chapter 7, verse 6 through 13. And, and what had happened, the context there is that the Pharisees are accusing Jesus and his disciples of not following their traditions. So verse 6, he says, And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to, to the tradition of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If a man tells his father or mother, Whatever you have gained from me is korban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. Now that, that paragraph, that section there, what I'm going to point out here is not the main point of that paragraph, but there are truths embedded in there that you can see clearly. Look at verses 8 through 9. How does, well, verse 7 and, and verse 6b, where it says, you can kind of see it in your scriptures, quoted off, like blocked off with quotes around it. Jesus is quoting Exodus 20, 12 and 21, 17. And interestingly, it's not an exact quote. Jesus himself paraphrases and yet calls it the word of God. Given our wrestling we had last week about what happened in Matthew versus Luke in terms, I think it's safe to say that the, when they say something, they could be paraphrasing what happened, what said, and it still be the heart of what God wants us to hear. That would be considered scripture. But Jesus there is quoting the Exodus chapters. What does he call those Exodus verses he just quoted in verse 8? How does he describe it? Verse 8. How does he describe those verses he just quoted? Commandments of God, right? And then verse 13 what does he call those commandments? The word of God. But look at verse 10. How does he describe those where they came from? For who said? Moses said, honor your father and mother. 
You catch that? Jesus, the Son of God, is saying about Exodus 20, Moses said, God said, one and the same. That's pretty awesome, right? Right there, he's showing Jesus' insight in what all of the Old Testament, he's kind of bundling it all up together, saying this is the word of God. And God used people to write it, because Moses said. So that's all super great, because if these are God's very words, then, as our catechism says, we should approach it with diligence, with preparation, with prayer, so that, right, so that we may accept it with faith and store it in our hearts and practice it in our lives. Now, let me ask you, why does that matter? So we said, why should we have all that? Well, because it's God's very word. And if God is speaking it, the one who created and sustains all things, we should listen. Why does it matter whether we believe that this is all God's word? That this is truly God's words? Why does it matter? I'll let you noodle that, but let me give you two reasons. I've got one on here. Our faith and the gospel demand that being true. If you do not believe that this is all true, that only parts of it are true, you're going to have a problem because Jesus right here is referencing Scripture and he treats it as God's word. And you have to say, well, did Jesus think it was all God's word? Did Jesus think some of it? Did he think that it erred? If you challenge that, well, why would you believe anything else? How do you know then what to believe from the Bible? It's either all true or not. And if it's somewhat not true, then how do you know for sure what you believe is true? You get that? It feels like a big circle. Well, it is. There are a few places, actually really one way, circular reason ever makes sense. When we argue about a point, we're going to point to an authority, right? You could either point to reasoning, like logic, or you can point to an authority. Like if you're writing a paper, kids, in school, and you quote somebody, you're not quoting them usually just because it sounded nice. Maybe you are. But if you're trying to prove a point, you're going to point to an authority, right? And that authority is an authority for a reason. They have skills, experience, etc. So you can say this is true because they said it's true. If you'd ask that person why they said it's true, they'd either point to reason or they'd point to another authority. And then you'd ask that authority, well, why is that true? And they'd either point to reason and authority or somehow. It's going to keep going back to an authority. At some point, there has to be a, the buck's got to stop here. And that's the only point where circular reason is going to be okay is if you're pointing to a final authority. If the final authority says this is true because I said it, well, then you can take it to the bank because there's no other authority above them to challenge them. So if God says something, he says this is my word, you either have to say, well, God, you're a liar, or I'm going to accept it by faith. Um, let me read you this quote about why the, the gospel depends on this being true. 
Al Mohler says, The truthfulness and authority of the Holy Scriptures must rank as first-order doctrine. For without affirming the Bible as the very Word of God, we are left without any adequate authority for distinguishing truth from error. If this is not the very Word of God then you have no authority, no ruler, no benchmark to measure something against whether it's true or not. And you'll just be wandering in the darkness. Which is what happens if you start to say, well, I'm not so sure about that part. I'm not so sure about that part. And you're going to start to cut it down. And then you're going to be like, well, I don't know if I should trust any of it. And now you're going to have to ask yourself, well, what is truth? And then you'll say, well... It's all relative to someone's experience. And then you're going to be in a spiral of meaningless. But if you believe what he just said, you've got a hope to anchor yourself against. A solid rock. Okay. Last part, I want to just, as far as why it matters, and I want to just open it up to you. Why does the, this matter that the Bible is God's word and that we should come to it with this as if? is if you think about 2, Corinthians, or 2 Timothy 3.16, where it says all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable, that means it's useful, right, for something. It says four ways. It says for doctrine. That's what we believe. It's teaching, right? It says it's profitable for reproof. My son knows what reproof is, because that's when I say you did something wrong, right? It says this is the way you should go. And it says, no, you didn't do it that way. Scripture does that. Scripture is useful for showing us where we're going off the path. And then it says, Scripture, all Scripture is profitable or useful for correction. So what is that? That's actually where I've gone wrong. How do I get back on the right? Mending correction, fixing, right? So all of Scripture is profitable for teaching us for reproving us, for adjusting us, and then it says for instruction in righteousness. Scripture is our tutor that helps, takes us, helps us figure out what it is, what it means to live this life because it's from God. And then it has a purpose in that verse. It says in order that the man of God, a person, son or daughter of God, right, would be adequate that don't mean like, okay, you're good enough. No, no. That means complete. Complete. And then the second part is fully equipped for every good work. That fully equipped word is a military term in the original language. Fully equipped means you have all the weapons and the armor you need in order to face the task in front of you. That's what scripture is for. So the goal both of inspiration... And the usefulness of Scripture is that for you and I to be adequate, complete, mature, fully equipped for every good work. Did I put at the very end something about if God's purpose on your handout? Read that. If God's purpose is for Scripture to give us everything we need for faith and life, for every generation, not just this generation, God has to preserve Enough of the scripture for us to understand the message we must understand for faith and life. In other words, God has to work and make sure that the Bible exists in order for us to know all this. 
And if he doesn't preserve the scripture, then we don't have what we need for faith and life. So getting at the question of why does this all matter? If he doesn't preserve scripture for us, we don't have direction in life. We don't know why we're here. We don't know why things are the way they are. We don't know how to know how they'll be made right. We need scripture for all of that. Okay, so that's my thoughts on why scripture, why this message, why this this, uh, catechism answer matters, that we come to the word of God with diligence and um, preparation and prayer. Why does it matter for you? Why do you need to remember that? Like, okay, the Bible is God's word. Why does that matter to you? If somebody came to you and said, why does the Bible, why do you care that the Bible is God's word? What would you say? Yeah, they're, and they're everywhere, aren't they? Lies everywhere. In our media, and our coming out of our mouth, on our social apps, and from the entertainment, from our own head, right? And then the, the evil one throwing lies at us. Yep. Why else for you? Why does it matter that, why does this whole, this catechism question matter to you in terms of what it says? Teresa? Because I've seen what it can do in my life. Mm. You've seen it change your heart, change your life. There's something to be said for that, for sure. When we are telling someone else about who Jesus is, your experience does matter. I mean, now it's not the final authority, because this is the final authority. But the way you've seen it confirmed as true, not simply because your heart believes it now, is because you've seen it change you. Then we still, when we find that gold, 
we still build our foundations. Yeah. And those get wiped out. And then we come back to that truth that this is it. This is all. Yeah. You're getting at a, a very deep, deep concept. There, there's a big $5, $10 word for it. I won't need to explain that, but you're getting at the concept of how do we know what we know. If you ask somebody on the street, well, how do you know that that's true? They will point to something, right? Most often these days, they point to their feelings. They know what's true because of what they feel. What's the problem with pointing to what's true based on your feelings and even really what you ultimately what you just have experienced? They fluctuate. Like, how are you feeling this morning? Like, maybe you're like, eh, well, how do you know what's what you said yesterday was true? I don't know. Does it even matter? Boy, it feels like a song. Some of the songs put out there that are so discouraging, aren't they? 